Coming up next, the booking reads Willa Cather's My Antonia. Welcome to the Bookening. Welcome to episode 55. Can you believe, can you guys believe that we're 55 episodes into the Bookening? No. Feels like just yesterday we were in that little room together. Yep. Recording. Just like yesterday. Episode one. And now here we are. We're in the beautiful Warhorn Studios. We're sitting on gold thrones. Faberge eggs are being juggled by our jester right now. Anyway, my name is Nathan Alverson. I am a poor wayfaring stranger upon this round globe of misery we call the world. And I'm joined by two other weary travelers. First one of them, well, he's a regular son of a, a sea... Biscuit, Brandon Chastine. Son of a sea biscuit? Son of a sea biscuit. Okay. How you doing there, Brandon? Good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I guess I should provide some context, some some of my context for today, is that I had an endoscopy this morning, Brandon. What's an endoscopy, Nathan? That's where they put you on Twilight drugs. Oh, I thought you meant like the vampire stuff. (laughs) (laughs) A sparkling vampire comes out, drinks your blood. I went to pick Nathan up because he's not allowed to drive and he's like, man, I really love Twilight. (laughs) 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 What's wrong with you? (laughs) Did you get that on tape? Blackmail. (laughs) If only. Man, I really loved it. No, I love the drug Twilight. It was quite impressive. It was like being incepted or something. Incepted with good health. What I remember is they wheeled me into the thing and I was like, oh no, I'm being docked. I'm in a docked operating room. And then they were like, we're going to turn on the medicine now. It'll take you a little while to fall asleep. And I was like, okay, doctor. Cut to, I'm in the recovery room. But the weird thing about it is that there was absolutely no feeling of the passage of time. Like I've never had this in my life. Like generally when you sleep, you are aware that you've slept. You're aware that you've slept. You feel the passage of time. Yeah. But this was great. I mean, it was literally like... In my mind, the way that it happened was there was no change, and I don't really even remember being drugged up. I'm told that I asked many of the same questions over and over again in the recovery room, but <laughs> I have no your memory. Mom, your mom also told me that. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm told by my mom is what I mean, but I uh, only remember asking them once. I asked them until I knew the answer, I guess. So that's how my day's been. I don't remember why I'm telling that story, and you're a son of a sea biscuit. Great. That, that's why we decided to go with that metaphor. Um, I take it. Have you seen Dunkirk yet? I have not. Have you seen Dunkirk? No. Your incepted yes. thing made me think of that. That is by Christopher Nolan, the great Christopher Nolan. He likes to incept our brains with quality cinema. That's right. Do I stand by that? Yeah, I like Christopher Nolan. There's nothing wrong with Christopher Nolan. Uh, Brandon, you, I understand, had the great pleasure of a trip to Holiday World today. I did. Yeah, rode the voyage. Rode the voyage. Most intense wooden roller coaster I've ever been on in my life. In the roller coaster ride that has been the beginning of this episode, have we reached the pinnacle where I say your name and title yet? What happens after that? Is that like the steep drop down? <laughs> Voyage is the best wooden roller coaster I've ever been on. Wow. I've been on a lot of wooden roller coasters, so there. You've heard, you heard it from Brandon. He's the scholar who's a baller of Rough roller coasters. <laughs> reviewing wooden roller coasters. This is our new segment. <laughs> our new segment. <laughs> I'd be fine with that. We could put it behind the paywall. Maybe you and the Phantom could do that. Yeah, there we go. Finally have an idea. I was uh, so looking forward to getting that nailed down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you've been w- waiting for a great... Uh... Anyway, we just hit the pinnacle of uh, Brandon's... Day. Day. And now we go into the depths. We travel <laughs> to the depths of introducing <laughs> Jake Metzl. The pastor who's a master of reading. How are you doing, Jake? I'm all right. What's the most exciting thing that happened in your day? Today... I got an endoscopy. You got an endoscopy. Brendan 
Brendan. Brendan. I just called you Brendan. Like Brendan Fraser. <laughs> Brendan. Brendan, Brendan Fraser probably drunkenly wondered what happened to his career. And <laughs> oh, uh, sorry, Brandon. Brendan Fraser. But I liked you. You shouldn't have done whatever you did that made people stop hiring in movies. I liked George of the Jungle. I liked you in Mummy Parts One and Two. Never saw Part Three. I'm sure it was fine or whatever. Did see Rachel Weiss accept an Academy Award, and the announcer said, "Accepting her first Academy Award is Rachel Weiss, who has starred in such films as The Mummy." And I'm sure she felt great about that at the Academy Awards. But, <laughs> you were um, fine in Crash. Was he fine in Crash? He was in Crash. I never saw Crash. I forgot. I don't watch movies about people discovering things about themselves, yeah. generally speaking. That's what books are for. That's what books are for. Yeah. Jake, you got an endoscopy over here in this, my chair. You got a roller coaster. I did not get an endoscopy. Oh, no, 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 no you chair. didn't. I wasn't saying that you in my chair got an endoscopy. I'm saying in my chair is a man that got an endoscopy. Over in Brandon's chair, there's a man that took his family. They rode some wild roller coasters. What did you do to compete with, with those fine experiences today, sir? Today is my half birthday. Today's your half birthday. Wow. It is also the sixth birthday of my son the sixth the birthday of your son how old is he my third born he he's six nathan because it was his sixth birthday (laughs) (laughs) oh boy uh, you could be counting you could be counting his zeroth birthday as his first birthday like they do in china or wherever don't they do that somewhere yes i think so so what did you do you celebrate this son's birthday we went are we allowed to say the name of this son on Ian. the bookening? It's Ian. Ian. The Malaysia know can know about his name. What did you do with We actually do have real fans in Malaysia, by the way. Shout out to you guys. Yeah, it's like the second most listeners, I think, after the, the United, United States. States. Wow. Yeah. And we thought that we thought that those were bots or something like that, but Joseph, super tech guru, genius guy, looked into it and is convinced that we have a solid following in Malaysia. So shout out to you guys. Hey, send us Malaysia. Hey, send us uh, something on Facebook or yeah. Twitter, shoot us an email or something. We'd love to connect with you guys. Send us like a a priceless jewel. Yeah, <laughs> send us a priceless jewel, <laughs> like a dragon jewel, or I don't know anything I mean, about I think, Malaysia. I think it's only like one percent of our listenership, but it's significant enough. One percent of our listeners—that's like that's like a million people, right, <laughs> that's Jake? R- that's right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's like the whole country of Malaysia. So you, while we're doing that. Also, shout out to Georgia for having the second most listeners of any state. <laughs> hey, Georgia. <laughs> hey, Georgia. Don't, we have no idea why we have so many booking fans in Georgia, but we love you guys. You know why? What's up? Because Georgia is full of Georgia peaches, and what would a Georgia peach love? Something but, as sweet and awesome as us. Something as sweet as awesome as us. Fun fact, Jake's so sweet, he melts in the rain. Oh. <laughs> He brought me popsicles today after my endoscopy, Brandon. <laughs> did oh yeah, he did. Patriotic possibly. He's also they a were... patriot. He loves our country. <laughs> That's right. They were tasty. <laughs> yeah. I shared them with you guys. Yeah. And I think on the next episode of the just to give people a little teaser, we might read the jokes from our popsicle sticks. Ooh. You guys excited about that? Tune yeah. in next time. Yeah. All right. So look forward to that. All right, guys. Any more thoughts about roller coasters before we Go into the roller coaster of emotion and nostalgia and memory and Americana that is Willa Cothers. Willa Cothers. Willa Cothers, my Antonio. No. All right. Oh, uh, Brandon, let's do some shout outs to our fine fans. We got mm-hmm. shout out to John. John. <laughs> shout out to Beth. Beth. Shout out to. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Eric and Catherine, <laughs> the lovebirds. <laughs> Mysterious shout out to Mr. X. Mr. X. <laughs> All right, I love it. Thank you for supporting us, folks. Your money couldn't have been spent on something more significant to humanity. All right, let's get to Willa Catherine. So I'm really excited to talk about Something Wicked This Way Comes. Yeah? What'd you think about Something Wicked This Way Comes? I thought it was really... What's that sound? (laughs) I'm doing it. (laughs) Yeehaw. That's right. He's the contextual Texan. You're welcome, sound effects fans. He's the contextual Texan. He's from Texas. He gives us a little much-needed context on the work in question, which today is my Something Wicked This Way Comes. Yeah. Yeah. Something Wicked This Way Comes. I am no. not prepared. No, we're doing My Antonia by Willa Cather. Brandon's going to give us some much-needed context. Take it away, Brandon. 
I'm just going to read the book. Okay. You're just going to read the book? <laughs> yeah. That's our context. All right. Uh, no, I think the where we should start is uh, on the pronunciation of the name. Okay. Cather? No, yeah, that. Is Cather? it Cather or Cather? Cather? How do you Cather say it? we established. Will Cather. Yeah. Will Cather. And how do you you say, how do you say Antonia? Antonia. You say Antonia. The book, the, the audio book version that I read said Antonia. Antonia? Antonia. 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 Antonia would be the sort of anglicized. Well, I don't know. Let's let's let me just pull it up. Actually, let's I was make, just curious. Maybe maybe it did say my Antonia. No, nah. I did not know how to make sense of this. So she provides one footnote in this book, and this is just sort of jumping in, like towards the end. But she, being Willa Cather, mm-hmm. provides one footnote about the pronunciation of Anton Antonia or Antonia, mm-hmm. and I don't know what to make of it. So. I felt like the place to begin with context was actually figuring out how to pronounce the book. H.L. Mencken once wrote, No romantic novel ever written in America is one half so beautiful as my Antonia. Hi, I'm... Ha-ha! Oh, wait. I remember. Get the remixed version of... All right, wait. So that's so we know how Ken Burns says it because he did the introduction to my Audible thing. Uh, let me just see how this other guy says it. To carry an Irene Minor in memory of affections old and true. I might have went past it. Optima dies. Prima fugit. Optima dies. Prima fugit. Virgil. I am so fond of Willa Cather's work. Come on. Was the piano score a part of the book? No. <laughs> that would have been really gay. To carry an Oh, he doesn't say it. He, okay. uh, he, he says Antonia, though. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not going to say the name at all of this podcast. <laughs> what because what does the note say? Read the note. The note says the Bohemian, Bohemian name is strongly accented on the first syllable, so we're all doing that. Right. I said Antonia, too, but then I heard, I was listening to an audible version today, and they were saying Antonia. Like the English name Anthony, and the I is, of course, given the sound of long E. Well, the duh. name is pronounced Antonia. 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 I guess Antonia stresses the T-O-N. I guess it would make more sense but that they all Antonia call her... Antonia stresses the E. E. We're not going to figure this out. We could just call her Tony like they do, there I we guess. Go. But, Tony. Tony. Um, my Tony. My, my Tony. Tony. All right, we'll just rechristen the book My Tony. My Tony. All right, let's jump in then. But, and I will say Cather because that rolls off the tongue. So there we go. That's context. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Baggage? So, uh, Willa Cather, she was born in the late 1800s. I can give you the exact dates if you'd like it. 1873. She died in 1947. She was. A writer of American novels. Oh, was she? She was. She actually had a childhood very similar to our narrator's childhood. She grew up in Virginia. Her parents left Virginia to follow her grandparents when she was about... So her parents didn't die in her case, but when she was about, I think, eight or nine, right? They moved out to Nebraska. Mm -hmm. They lived in a town of about a thousand that had a little small school and a post office. In fact, around the age of 11, she got a job in the post office, and she was able to take the mail out to all the people in the countryside and was able to meet them and talk to them. And she, as you can tell in the book, she liked to talk to people and observe people and watch their mannerisms, watch their way of speaking. And this was one way that she fell in love with the country, fell in love with the people there from a very young age. She would live in Nebraska for a while, but eventually she did move away. I believe she went to university. Do you know that? She went to, I think she went to the same... University of Nebraska. So pretty much very similar to Jimmy's story. She started writing in the 20s, well, I guess actually the earlier than the 20s and the teens because this was published in 1918. This is part of a trilogy of books that focus on life in the, the Nebraska prairies. Um, the, it, you, have, you have the Song of the Lark, O Pioneers, in my Antonia. But it's a thematic trilogy, right? It's not the same characters? No, it's or... not the same characters. I do believe that Thea Kronberg, if I remember correctly, she might appear in O Pioneers and the Song of the Lark. Or it might just be the Song of the Lark. But my Antonia is unique in that it's, it's kind of her love song to the Nebraska 
plains and to the people who lived there. And so this is, it's a beautiful book, but it's also the structure of it is different than a lot of the other things we've read. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that we can discuss at length, I Not, suppose. Uh, yes. But she, yeah, so she wrote this in 1918. She had already had some other successes with novels and some short stories before then, but this was considered pretty much immediately to be her masterpiece. People who read it thought it was a masterpiece, and even today, uh, most scholars look back at this as her masterpiece. Just some other th- things of interest about her life. She was never married. She had intense rela- uh, friendships with women. She went and actually lived with a woman in New York for a while. Of course, you have a lot of scholars that try to say that she was a lesbian, but there's not any evidence from her own letters or from anything like that that she actually was a lesbian. Somebody that I read somewhere, who was actually a fairly liberal scholar, was complaining about all the other liberal scholars doing this to gather, saying it's anachronistic, what, privilege to try and read the lesbianism back into Cather's past, which was interesting seeing that come from their own camp. Mm -hmm. Anyways, that's an interesting little tidbit. Um, Something else interesting I found about her is that she is seen as having a very masculine style versus a feminine style, and that she herself, she saw her heavy, her biggest influences being the great American writers and also the great British novelists. She looked, she liked Jane Austen and she liked other lady writers, but she saw them as having sort of soft um, style that she didn't want to mimic with her own. And so... Her books are mostly written from first person and written uh, about from the point of view of a man, correct? Yeah. Like this. This is written from Jim's perspective. Right. And so, of course, the question is, is he believable as a man? Do, you, do we think that she actually writes men well? And... A question we will endeavor to answer later on in the, this very program yeah. or maybe next episode. Because the closest comparison we've had in the history of the bookending is, what was her name? Marilyn Robinson, yeah. writing from the perspective of somebody in the Plains. Right. In fact, probably drawing direct influence from Cather. Mm-hmm. Wait, what was his name? Wasn't it very similar to Jim yeah, Burden? Bundren. Bundren. So we had John Bundren and Jim Burden. Yeah. I mean, there were definite parallels and... Um, looking at those two novels together is something you could do <laughs> if you wanted to. Um, if you wanted to write a... Con- for any young high schoolers out there looking for a compare-contrast idea, <laughs> I guess you could. Anyway, so that's a, that's a brief overview of just of her life. She not a whole lot to say about her life. She wasn't like she had an overly exciting one. But she did note that the young ages of a writer usually from around the age of 8 to 12, have the most influence over their works later in life. You definitely see that with Dickens. He wrote a whole lot about orphans, and he wrote a whole lot about London and canning factories and the poor in London. I think you could probably make that argument that you see that with quite a few of the authors that we've read. Steinbeck, Jane Austen. Those are the worlds that they grew up in. My understanding is that Catherine wrote her first novel about London, and then she had uh, somebody that she looked up to convince her how to take her aside and convince her to write about her childhood and about the plains. And it is something that a lot of authors talk about, that this nostalgia for the past and childhood, that comes back and you write what you know, right? And you mm-hmm. don't focus on things that you're not familiar with. And so the Nebraska prairie, this love for the Nebraska prairie, and it, it's just all throughout this book and for the people of Nebraska. And so anything you guys wanted to add about her biography? I have things in support of her lesbianism that I don't want to say because I'd rather just Seriously? skip right over it. You well, what's like? What's, what's an example? We can. An example would be that she spent her at least part of her college years dressing like a man and going by the name William. Yeah, I forgot to add that point. That was something I would have added. But I think and it the, really is. And there's actually a picture to, of her dressed in men's garb on like the deck of a ship, and she's dressed up as this character. She would. William. She was known as William, called William. That seems to really support, yeah. Then the other thing in support, if I'm not mistaken, My Antonio was written right in the wake of being, I think her closest friend who she had lived with decided to get married or to move away or something. Yeah. So within months of her friend Isabel deciding to marry a violinist, she wrote this. She totally wrecked her relationship with this friend. Like, she felt shocked. According to this, she felt shocked and betrayed, and that was basically the end of their friendship until very late in life when it was restored. Huh. Jim and Antonia style. Well, this is one of those critics that just really wants to make her out to seem like a lesbian. But this seems to be... This this critic absolutely wants her to be a lesbian. 
Yeah, he's just he just states it. He assumes it, and then he like has a little bit of like now whether or not we read too much into my Antonia because she was a butch right. lesbian. You know, that's another question. Yeah, but. we don't actually have any evidence one way or another. Nope. And I just think that sort of historical gossip. I, I kind of feel this way. Uh, we've always put off having this discussion because I don't know that everyone in this room de- de- uh, agrees, but I sort of feel this way too about um, what's Lewis his face, Carroll. Lewis Carroll, which is in in lieu of actually having anything but the most circumstantial. Now, Lewis Carroll, let's take him back off the table because you could argue maybe <laughs> that you have some stuff with him. We have some, some circumstantial evidence. <laughs> we, have, we have some, but with Lewis, okay, fine. This is why we're not having the Lewis Carroll discussion. <laughs> you brought him up. Well, because I think this could extend to him, but by the dirty looks you guys are both giving me, I see that it can't. Um, <laughs> in Willa Cather's case, we do not know. We just don't yeah, we really, know. We have yeah. some circumstantial stuff. We have some stuff that feels mannish, and we have some stuff that if you were a pastor, maybe, and you had that person in your church, you'd say, okay, hmm. But we just don't know, so who cares? Yeah, from... She was a writer and she was famous and she knew a lot of famous people, but it wasn't an overly eventful life. She was private. And so we don't really know a lot. She lived, we we know, I wish I remember this lady's name. We know that she lived with a woman in uh, New York together. They had a house together. It wasn't Isabel. No. No, Her name was was after Isabel. It was was the the woman that became her literary. Edith Lewis. Yes. Thank you. Edith, yeah. Her like. Executor after she died. or An editor and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not outside the realm of possibility that she was a woman who simply didn't married there 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 you know i mean i mean i think when i think about scripture you have like you don't condemn a, ba- a man without two or three witnesses you don't excommunicate a man you know both old and new testament we have precedent for not <laughs> making any harsh judgments about anyone without any actual evidence and so if you don't have it you don't have it well look there are men in our in our church that are single and i, I can think of at least one <laughs> In their mid to late 30s or 40s or beyond, and they room with other men and have for some time. And you know what? We talk to them about, you know, whether or not they have same-sex temptations and care for them, but that doesn't mean that they're... Yeah, you'd be foolish not to ask the question as a pastor, but decades removed from having any chance of being uh, Willa Cather's pastor, I think you can just say, you know what? We don't know. We don't know. As far as we don't really see it in her work, except for insofar as there's a sort of weird, you could maybe argue asexual quality to the book that, or something. You could you could argue certainly there are things about Willa Cather that aren't feminine, right? Absolutely. You could argue that about Dorothy Sayers, um, definitely about Dorothy Sayers, who I, I people have I've heard people try to make the argument that she was a lesbian too mm-hmm. because I don't believe she was ever married. Surprised they haven't come after Jane Austen. They probably have, but oh, they have. I've managed to avoid that. Lots of stuff. Yeah, and it's just. I mean, they so they try to then write her biography to lesbian, and so then why do you do that? Well, it's because you want to read my Antonia as a lesbian book, right? So you want to read it through the lens of lesbian literary criticism, right? Queer theory, queer theory, which is just stupid theory. Mm. So <laughs> we don't do stupid things. We stay away from stupid things <laughs> right. and stupid people. So 0% stupidity on the booking. Yep. That's right. No stupidity here. No stupid is a stupid free zone. Yeah. Optima Deus, prima fugit. <laughs> <laughs> a lesbian doesn't know Latin. Yep. <laughs> There's never been a lesbian that's known Latin. We all know that. Except for the, the people that lived on the island of Lesbos or whatever. That's right. <laughs> um, so... Yes. Have we, some, have we dealt with that to everyone's satisfaction? I think so. All right. I'll bring down the booking gavel. Hey, it's another sound effect. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Judge Nathan is in session. <laughs> Uh, we will move on. Brandon, what, uh, what else you got context? Well, that's wise. a nice segue into just some of the historical background to this novel. Lena Lingard, she's one of the characters here. She's actually a good example of the new sort of freedom that was available to women, good or bad, mm-hmm. in the early 1900s. Um, and it would make it possible for a woman like the author of this book, Willa <laughs> Cather. <laughs> Willa Catheter. Um, I keep wanting to say catheter. Willa yes, Cather yeah. <clears throat> to go and make a living and live in New York with her female publisher and die in 1947, whenever she died, alone and a spinster. Mm-hmm. And it was lots of different reasons for it. America's growing prosperity. 
as we see in this novel, the actual, the just hard work of these women going out and making the living for themselves. But then you also had the available markets and means that were coming because of America's prosperity, changes in the global market, changes in America's place in the global market, all these sorts of things that were happening and allowed for you to have this class, a growing middle class in America, but also then income available for women so that they didn't have to get married. If like Lena Lingard, they thought getting married only got you what an angry father is that what she said yeah be like tiny and go uh, make their fortune at what did she do like an alaskan was it a gold, yeah she ran gold a rush? like yeah. a sailor's bar yeah, yeah, yeah. and then she helped found a yeah, town ben, mm-hmm. yeah. dawson's creek or something right, right? <laughs> she said she's founded that tv show <laughs> yeah became a millionaire savvy enough to know where the people were going to be in instead of going for the gold went for the, the yeah. saloon and right place to stay or whatever and so you have a lot of these women characters. You have, um, what's it, Francis? What's it, Hind- Hindkren or whatever the name nah, was? I don't remember how to say but it. She's, she's one of these figures. You have Tiny. You have Lena, who Lena ends up living with Tiny, right? Can you have? No. Wait. Yeah, maybe. Because Lena Wait. can make the dresses for Tiny, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're so like... they both end up it? in San Francisco pre- together. Yeah. That's right. So these strong female characters that have independent means, which are just mirrors to... Edith, not Edith, I keep wanting to say Edith Wharton because we're going to talk about Edith Wharton, Willa Cather herself. So that's a bit of the background to where these characters are coming from that populate this novel. You also have, in here you do have the disparity that's kind, that's a little bit disappearing between the wealthy classes who have these established farms and then the immigrant classes who are coming in and trying to make a living for themselves like the Shemeridans in their tragic little story that happens there and but you see similar stories in the novel second novel we ever read east of eden Eden, yeah Yeah. so you just see echoes of this in english literature and in american literature but with this novel in particular you actually have pride of place given to the immigrants in their stories in a way that they really it hadn't been before and so that's where edith wharton comes into the picture i don't know have you ever read read any edith wharton books Mm -mm. she wrote ethan frome and I want to, it's not an American in Paris. <laughs> no, um, yeah. I have not. I have not. But I always get her confused with other people. Which Edith is Nesbitt. Why, uh, What's the famous novel that she wrote? Uh, it's about the man who falls in love with the woman, but he can't marry her because he's married. That sounds like just about every novel ever. Yeah, Venice is a famous one. The Age of Innocence. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. In fact, there's a Martin Scorsese movie based on Pretty good one. book. Yeah. Yep. Well, so Edith Wharton, she was a famous American writer, right at the same time. Maybe I think she was born maybe a decade earlier than um, Willa Cather. But she's a good parallel to Willa because she, Willa, she's a good parallel because she was writing about the upper class American families, the ones that most other people would be writing about at the time. She was actually nom- nominated for a Nobel Prize multiple times. And then you have Cather or Cather come in with her book. And she's writing about a very different subject matter. She's writing about the the immigrant families out on the Nebraska plains and the hardships that they're facing. So that there, yeah, you do have your wealthy families. You do have Jim, and you do have the burdens, which for all everything we can tell in the story, they do fairly well for themselves. I mean, he becomes he has enough means to become a great Western railway lawyer in New York City. And in fact, part one ends with what does she say to him? Oh, if I live here like you, that is different. Things will be easy for you, mm. but they will be hard for us. And then each section of the book, you have the hired girls, you have Lena Lingard, the pioneer woman's story. So it's just, it's the stories about these women and how they were shaped by this landscape and how they survived and became the hardy women that Jim ends up admiring because all the city women... They're soft, <clears throat> so they don't know how to run a household, and all these uh, immigrant country girls end up actually being help- useful to their husbands and help their households thrive, those, those which is their... Say what? I said, I was, I was, one of your favorite parts. That was one of my favorite little descriptions of how... Yeah. I was thinking about you the whole time, how we got to get you a little Norwegian... little Norwegian... Immigrant <laughs> girl out in... Yeah, that's why it was my favorite the part. country girl. I was just yeah. like, ah, yeah. <laughs> Hired girls. <laughs> Whoa. Maybe I can get my shrew of a wife on a train. And what was that guy's name? Chip Wick Cutter. Wick Cutter. Or something <laughs> weird like that. <laughs> Cutter. Talking about a disgusting character. <laughs> I'll Wick Cutter. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Not Wick Cutter, is it? Yeah, it's something like that. <laughs> 
Wick. It's he, the cutters. He, it might just be a nickname. I mean, he's got like a really evil. I like, never thought about that. Wick cutter. Yeah, he's wick cutter. cutter. He's wick cutter. He's like uh, he has. He's got a very snidely whiplashian sort of a name. Whatever. Yeah. It is. So, anyways, you got old wick cutter. Mm-hmm. And that got that's derailed somehow. What I'm were we sorry. Talking about? Uh, oh, you and the higher girl. You want me to marry a Norwegian yeah, girl? Yeah, yeah. Edith Wharton. All yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, jazz. All the kinds of girls that that <laughs> Antonia admired, and so did Jim, and all that. Yeah, and so. I guess the only the last two things to kind of touch on would be the larger thematic things that this is doing and its position within within the themes of literary history mm. <laughs> with those. <laughs> touch away. <laughs> Let's touch away on that. That sounds so exciting. Um, Brandon, it does sound exciting. Don't denigrate yourself. Thank you, Nate. Everyone loves your context. Memory. All Nostalgia. alone in the moonlight. Yeah. yeah. This book is in the great train of novels that are thinking about the past and ruminating on the past and the nostalgia that's a part of that. One of my personal favorites that falls into this vein is David Copperfield, but it goes as far back as Tristram Tristram Shandy. One thing that they have in common is most of them are told from the perspective of a first-person narrator because, I mean, that just makes sense if you have a book that's going to be heavily dealing with themes of memory and loss and the past it's going to be told from a character who has memories and thoughts about the past in there now writing this down which is another reason that this has obvious influence over marilyn robinson because her story it's epistolary and that automatically fits into this category so yes yeah, so you have this first person narrator um I'm, i don't get the sense that cather really wants us to see this as an unreliable narrator i don't have any reason to believe that no, the only thing to be, I mean, I think maybe to be said about that is you're definitely getting as much of how Jim feels about things as how he thinks about things. And so mm-hmm. everything is to... cast in the warm glow of his nostalgia. And he sort of knows, I mean, there's a reason he but it's, yeah, he it's has the manuscript, it says Antonia, and then he's like, I better write my Antonia, which I think is an affectionate thing to do, but also a way of saying, I know this is filtered through my, my, experience, my experience, my my, my nostalgia. And he, he at one point, I think also... He's talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't there places where he talks about wanting to forget about Antonia? Like, and not, oh no, no, it's about not wanting to see her. It's about not wanting to see her again, because if he saw her again, then whatever memory he had of her might be destroyed by reality, and he prefers the the memory. He prefers what he remembers, but then every time he, he sees her, he feels the memory's true. So anyhow, the point of that is he's he's very self-aware that he may be casting and is probably casting things in a warm glow, but he doesn't really care. Right. He's a reliable narrator in so far as he's giving you the facts of the situation and not in so far as he's filtering them. He knows it and you know it, sort of. But mm-hmm. uh, we'll talk more about, we'll, we'll return to that later on in our discussion, I think. But that's, I mean, it's a, so it's a part of this tradition and it's a rich tradition. You see a lot of it. and um, But the other thing then, the other interesting thematic thing she's doing with the novel, which is kind of unique to this book in particular, but also pointing towards other things that were happening in literature at the time. Each chapter kind of works as its own little short story. It's not necessarily building one big narrative for you. Instead, you have little snippets of experience, which again, is quite a bit like Gilead. Right. It's almost like portraits that you're getting. Some chapters will just be a picture of one person, maybe Lena, maybe this other Norwegian family, maybe it'll be the Cutters. Then another chapter will be just this one event that happened, and it's it builds up to a story about Antonia, but not a story as we would traditionally think about it. It doesn't necessarily have a narrative arc or plot yeah. to it, mm-hmm. like a Dickens story, for example. Right. But the portrait that he builds is telling a story also, because you can you can plot something. Things definitely happen to Antonia, but it, the structure's different than uh, other novels that had come before it. Part of what I f- feel like is so masterful about it, it feels so effortless. The way she does it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's engaging, and you're not feeling like you're following, you know, the train, you're not on a train, you're not following an, an arc. Yeah, like with Dickens, you would say like, and three months later, this mm-hmm. happened, or the next night, this happened. With this, you're not really necessarily getting that. Each one, like I said, is kind of its own self-contained story. Has hints of uh, Southern literature and a lot of things that would interest the Southern people writing at the time, but not Southern literature. It's its own thing. It's Midwest literature, I guess, or the Plains literature. So, 
But yeah, so as far as just the structure, this is, it's very unique as far as I know. She wasn't cribbing off of anyone. Well, we'll, we'll come back to talk yeah. about that a little bit more. Too. Yeah, that's pretty much all I've got. So. All right, well, um, what's that sound? It's the airplane. Indicating baggage check, the part of the show where we discuss our baggage, the baggage that we brought to the book. That is, Jake, what baggage did you bring to Willa Catheter's My Antonia? So this is the baggage I knew I was bringing, and I guess the baggage I didn't know I was bringing. The baggage I knew I was bringing was Will Cather is one of those people that a certain style of academic, I want to say faux intellectual, agrarian type Mm -hmm. really likes to trot out. And so that, that whole, everything about about that feels icky to me and I don't specific, like I mean we make fun of them all the time on the booking specifically in our circles it'd be like a conservative Christian-y kind of Catholic a lot of time Barry uh, what's his name Wallace not Wallace Wendell Barry, Barry. Wendell Berry is yeah, the big the, one there's a, there's a certain kind of person that likes to uh, pretend like they're going to be a homesteading, shire-dwelling right, yeah, type they, of, you know, s- we're going to have our own self-sufficient garden and, you know, be very, you know, we're going to be agrarian and it's a part of our Christianity. And, I'll be outside uh, smoking and my pipe, obvious- not looking at my iPad because I would never have anything like that. That's I'd- right. And I'm going to talk like I would imagine a Tolkien character would talk whenever I get a chance mm-hmm. to. and. I hold in highest regard Tolkien, Wendell Berry, and Willa Cather. We love those people. Absolutely love those people. We are, Jake. You like to light up your pipe. I light up my pipe. Read your Wendell Berry. And it's all about the Shire. God wanted us to live in the Shire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Drink your whiskey, whatever. Grow yeah. your beard out. Your pint. Yeah, so so I find that, that whole culture, subculture to be... Obnoxious and terrible. Pretty obnoxious, yeah. So... Uh, there was a little bit of that kind of stigma that I brought to this to this book, which I shed pretty quickly. Oh, Marilyn Robinson also mm. actually fits yeah. right in in there too, and we had, and we'd already experienced Marilyn Robinson. So, but you on our especially not so much in the episodes themselves, but when we did our year in review or whatever, you were the closest thing that Marilyn Robinson had in the booking verse to a defender. That's right. So, well, yeah. Well, this is. Uh, in a, as I like to say, in a whole nother galaxy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, <laughs> out of it. <laughs> out of, out of. I thought this Catherine book really, maybe at, we'll get into this of, later. Yeah. I thought this book really helped me put a, my finger on why Marilyn Robinson was the worst. I mean, like. <laughs> what, characters oh that you care about and love and a plot that matters and is gripping some understanding of the nature of good and evil (laughs) when you're not she's not even trying whereas marilyn robinson was like i will write about good and evil and i know nothing about it (laughs) but i can quote random calvin things and shut up marilyn robinson (laughs) talk about raindrops yeah marilyn robinson was a good poet but a crappy novelist well i don't know that so far as to call her a crappy novelist (laughs) Um, i'm gonna Judge that to be overstatement, but yeah, Willa Cather is something else. Out um, of this galaxy. Out of this galaxy. So that's the that's the baggage I brought, and I quickly, as I said, shed it. The other baggage that I brought was just being a Midwesterner, and I didn't realize how how big a deal that was or would be to me reading this book. Mm. But so for a little bit of personal context, my family. So I'm like three quarters British Isles. If you're going to give a family history, I think you have to talk about Demon Mensel, even though it has <laughs> nothing Menzel. to do with anything. I will. I will talk about Demon Mensel. I don't know if he's related or not. <laughs> Demon Mensel? There's a Demon Mensel. All right. So here's oh, the man. thing. Um, I know that my family, I know that my the the quarter of my family that is represented by the name Mensel uh, sailed here from Hamburg, Germany. But Mensel's not a proper German name. It's Prussian. So it's like, German, but also Czech or Austrian or something else that's not exactly German. And so there are mensels in Germany, there are mensels in Bohemia, mm. as it turns out, and there are mensels in Austria, and there are a lot of Jewish mensels, and then there are mensels that came to America uh, at the same time that the Shimerdas would have, and traveled across. They came in in Maryland, and they traveled across, and then they either tended to dump down into Missouri or up in Wisconsin, and they're scattered along along the way. And my my family would have come over speaking whatever they would have spoken at the same time that that the Shimerdas would have would have come over at the at the same time. That part of the family, my, my <laughs> this is weird, or maybe it's not so weird because you know it's just 
what happened in the book, and so it was a lot of what happened. So that would have been actually Jake, Jacob, Jacob Mensel, and his wife Sophia came. And then they had a son, Clarence, and his wife, Minnie, came over as a little girl from Virginia in Indiana. Um, there you go. And Clarence would have grown up sp- speaking whatever he spoke, and she would have come over from Virginia speaking, you know, having you know a little longer history in, in the States and met. And so that's... It's like a reverse. Yeah, it is a, but so that's part of part of my own personal family history. And so, <laughs> um, I don't think I think that we were probably Austrian, like Otto Fuchs, because mm-hmm. I am a six foot four, blonde haired, blue eyed male. Can't deny it. But I also have a brother who's Aryan perfection. <laughs> I also have a brother who's <laughs> who's five seven with dark hair. So I don't know. Who knows? We're all. A, Muttly, my my, I'm a Midwestern mutt. That's the the right. point. And you know, and then on the other side of of my family, my my stepmom's family came from England. They were farmers, and my stepmom's mom and dad are still well, still farmers to this day in in the Midwest. And so the the culture of the Midwest and Midwest kind of farm community and all that those roots go deep down. And uh, so that was some baggage. I, d- I guess I didn't know I was bringing, but it felt like I was very much reading a kind of personal history of. You felt some real connection to it. Yeah, my my heritage. Yeah. Talking about Demon Mensel, though. Demon. That so Demon Mensel. Um, there is a guy who shares my last name. You can never find. I can never find his first name. <laughs> but what I can find are three not first names for him. One is Colonel Mensel. The other is Demon Mensel, and the other is Bloody Mensel. Wow. And he was a, uh, he was a Prussian colonel, conquered a lot of France, was a bloody, nasty, awful man, and uh, made himself rich, taxed the crap out of people, and sent out an edict that if you didn't pay your taxes, whatever taxes that he, you know, he was using to enlarge his coffers, he would cut off your nose and ears and make you a public spectacle before he hung you. Wow. We thought, <laughs> we thought the IRS was bad. <laughs> and, and so then one day, when, it, Voltaire wrote, wrote about this guy. Really? Actually, yeah. Huh. Or referenced him, at least. In the same way I think that we would reference Hitler. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's your Mother Teresa. Then you got your demon mensal on the. This is some some great lineage here. (laughs) Anyhow, one day the guy gets uh, insanely drunk and is waving his sword around, just taunting the French people he's conquered. And somebody pulls a gun and shoots him in the head, and that's the end of Demon Mensal. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good end for Demon Mensal, I guess. But not before he passed on his dark lineage. Haven't we read about bloodthirsty Bohemians before? Haven't we read about them? <laughs> Wasn't that Dracula? Dracula was a bit of a bloodthirsty bohemian, if ever there was one. So, is, is, is Jake a vampire? <laughs> is <Jake> a vampire? <laughs> it's not bohemian, is he? No, he was. I drunk. have never seen Jake drink any blood. Okay. <laughs> I have seen him cut off a guy's nose and ears before he hung him, <laughs> but uh, he did not drink the blood out of those. Runs deep in the family. Newly created facial cavities. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, well, Jake, I hope that no one ever shoots you in the head while you are drunkenly taunting them, (laughs) French or otherwise. (laughs) My wife's French. (laughs) Uh Oh, okay. Well, but you felt some kinship to the uh, the Midwestern. That's the the point. I felt like I was I was was reading some of uh, some of my heritage here. It was really sweet. You felt that connection to it, yeah, yeah. Brandon, though, he's from Texas. He probably didn't feel any connection to all. He's probably like, what is this boring yeah, like, story about stupid Midwestern bumbling yeah. badgers and prairie dogs. <laughs> One of these. <laughs> One of these. <laughs> I have felt that connection with riders before, though. Yeah, like the Blood um, Meridian, probably Cormac yep, McCarthy. Actually, yeah. it's a horrible thing. But when I read Cormac McCarthy, one reason I love his book so much is that he de- he is describing the Texas plains where my grand great grandparents had land up in the panhandle of Texas and then. You know, basically that is the country he was describing. Have you ever seen the movie No Country for Old Men? The way that it opens with those long landscape shots, that's yeah, that's the sort of stuff that I would have Thanksgiving in. So it's, in other words, yeah, it's it's nice when you find that in a novel, oh, yeah. that nostalgia like that. I was looking for that in Faulkner because yeah. my mom's family came up from Mississippi, but <laughs> no. You don't want to find yourself no. in Faulkner. <laughs> yeah. or, I, I was, you may need a no. psychiatrist. <laughs> uh, so what uh, baggage did you bring to this book, sir? I have read this book twice, and both of those times were for a class. So, 
That's my baggage. The first time I read it was with a professor who was the best professor I had as an undergrad. And so I read this book with him in class. He was a great teacher and he taught it well. I loved it when I read it in his class and read it again as an undergr- uh, as a grad student and loved it. So that's my baggage with this book. Your baggage was baggages. You read it twice. You loved it twice. Yeah. Best teacher I've ever had. And now you're the best teacher that thousands of listeners to the booking ever had. Oh yeah. And they love this book. If you're out there, Ron, thank you. <laughs> uh, let's see. What baggage did I bring to this book? I brought similar baggage to Jake's first piece of baggage, which is that I have a real chip on my shoulder about people that quote Willa Cather or Wendell Berry or any of that kind of nostalgic equating, especially the Christian version of it, where Christians somehow equate conservative Christianity with going back to a time before they invented penicillin. I I just find that kind of thing really obnoxious. And I don't think that godliness has anything to do with smoking a pipe on a porch and looking at a beautiful sunset glance across the prairie or whatever. So I was a little bit antagonistic to this book. I also brought my antagonism towards Gilead, which I thought was just the way that Gilead ended. And I wasn't on the Gilead episode, obviously. I didn't get, never really got a chance to give my thoughts on that book. I really didn't care for it. <laughs> it had some really beautifully written passages, but the characters and the way that the story wrapped up and the what she was doing with the story just I found obnoxious and I just I didn't like it at all. So, I mean, that was a book that probably I could have gone either way on it, but the ending really, really made me not like it. So I was trying to be as open-minded as possible, but also just having sort of accidental baggage against this book. Like, and I knew it wasn't fair to like, Willa Cather didn't deserve my baggage, you know, but I, I also just knew I didn't like a lot of things that I sort of associated with that sort of thing. I really hesitated starting it for a while yeah for all of those reasons because it's just like oh man this is gonna be a, a drudge a slog yeah yeah a well slog, and i sort of yeah. thought like <laughs> even if it's good i've probably read a bunch of things like it like how many descriptions of sunsets on the prairie do i have to read in my life before i've got my fill like what, what is red gonna Laura do? Eagles wilder in fifth grade yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i've read that i've read different stories like this i've read cormac mccarthy for that sort of uh, stark landscape you know i mean i've read lots of different stuff so what is Willa Cather going to give me? Turns out quite a bit, but I was talking to Jake about it because he was telling me about how he felt like a connection to this book and it helped explain things about and he was thinking about his past and his relationship to the place that he lived. I've never really had those kinds of feelings in my life all that much. The fact that I'm a Midwesterner seems to me to be a fairly incidental fact, if not one that I'm vaguely antagonistic towards not that i don't like the midwest but i've never felt any particular pride of place or interest of place it's one of the reasons why it would be difficult for me to write any kind of a novel i think if i was just someone pointed a gun at my head and said write a novel capturing place would be hard for me because it's not something that i I tend to think probably subconsciously somehow there is a lot of the midwest in me you know because everything about the book was evocative and rang true and but it's just one of those things about myself i haven't really explored and you know maybe maybe you know we'll do it more next book when we read something wicked this way yeah something wicked this way comes if you want to know the landscape of (laughs) the nathan grew up in it was the landscape of the dark carnival so small community in illinois small community in illinois i mean i do i am a midwestern i can't escape that i I know i have connections to the place and i know i have a connection to a certain kind of town and a certain but it's just it's just not to be fair you grew up in bloomington which is kind of a weird place to grow up it's a very weird place it's very atypical of the middle is very different from evansville we've got iu university for people that don't know so we're somewhat cosmopolitan but we're still really small like we're a small town it's a town of seventy thousand people we got two movie theaters (laughs) one mall one mall five or six mcdonald's you know i mean it's not it's not a big town um, but it's very liberal, hippie, crunchy, progressive. We've got the Kinsey Institute here in town. We've got, um, yeah, it's very liberal. Yeah, you just said it. I don't need to repeat it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, there's a reason why. Well, if you listen to The World We Made. Yes. Um, you know that Advocate.com calls Bloomington a mecca for gays in the green belt or yes, something like that. Yes, it's a very heteroflexible town. So it's kind of uh-huh. a weird town. It's, 
always ranked in the top five gay-friendly cities in the country. And so it's just very like, it, it's not what you think of when you think of the Midwest. It, just like Austin, in, in some ways, is not what you think of when you think of Texas. But Bloomington is smaller and more insular. And I, I think that actually means the university culture has even tighter control on the culture of Bloomington than like UT does. Yeah, I mean, I've lived, I lived, I've or, lived in... Or, or UW has on Madison. I've lived Wisconsin. in a university town, other university towns, and they don't, like the culture of... Uh, I mean, I lived in Lafayette where Purdue University is, and in Lafayette, there is a river between West Lafayette and Lafayette proper, and Lafayette proper just feels like a towny Indiana town. You cross the river, then suddenly you're in the university, and the people there are much richer and more liberal, and everything that comes with that. Bloomington, the culture of the university seems to have permeated the entire town. And if you imagine Indiana as a map, you imagine a red state with a big blue dot near southern Indiana, which is Bloomington. I mean, and I think if I had to define my relationship to place, it would be a somewhat displaced sort of like if you pointed a gun at me and said, what are you? I'd say, well, I don't know. I'm kind of a small town cosmopolitan liberal I'm not a liberal, but I'm not, a, you know, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with the car mechanics of Martinsville, which is one town over from us, you know, with the factory workers. It's just, a, it's, it is kind of a weird place to grow up. So I don't know if that's helpful baggage, but that is my relationship to place has always been kind of weird, I guess. So it was interesting thinking about that. I don't know if there'll be much more to say about that, but it was interesting seeing it through Jake's eyes and realizing he was like, this book is explaining me, man. And <laughs> I'm like, eh, this book is good, but I really like it. I don't know if it's explaining me. Did this book explain you, Brandon? Probably not in the same way that it explains Jake. Yeah, you, you've got to read Blood Meridian to understand Brandon. Oh, man. He's like the judge. <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> Dancing with that bear. Dancing with the bear. Yep. <laughs> Brandon does dance with bears, and he is <laughs> responsible for the murder of millions. All right. Uh, any other baggage anybody wants to talk about brought to this thing? No. No. <laughs> A resounding no from Brandon Chastine. <laughs> All right, well... Um, a long list of questions there. Got a long... It's a pretty short list, actually, compared to my normal list, so maybe I'll try and burn through these and get us out of here. Where do we want to start? Where do we want to start? I don't know. Let's start with an Antonia. What do you guys think about that Antonia? Pretty open-ended question, I realize. But... That is a very open-ended <laughs> question. I thought she was great. You thought she was great. I liked my Antonia. You liked your Antonia. Yeah. What did you like about her? <laughs> Jake, what did I like about her? You liked what I liked about her, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if I want to hear it. <laughs> Which is that she's awesome. <laughs> she was awesome. <laughs> 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 it's after midnight already, so. Um, and Tony is a, a beautiful, sweet girl who loves her family, is proud of her family and the people that she loves, who works hard and sacrifices herself for the good of her family, who suffers because she's a trusting person and who still comes out all right in the end. And so she's somebody that you have a lot of reason to have sympathy for. And the way that she responds to things, it's not always beautiful. Sometimes I think Jim gives us some, you know, good balance of of her doing some dumb things or things that are, you know, that we don't like. But Yeah, her treatment of Jake... For example, her treatment of Jake, but then pretty nasty. It's connected to her loyalty to her family. Yeah, but it is still nasty. But the way she does it is pretty nasty. The way she does it is very nasty. Yeah. Are you? It's the closest she gets to becoming her mother, who's not the most likable woman in the world. Which is important because we need to feel like she can become her mother. Oh yeah, I think that's the that's the yeah. You have to have the drama and the tension that Mm -hmm. she could be. She could be spoiled. And Jim needs to always be wondering if she's going to be afraid that she's going to be spoiled. Which that's kind of the balance then, or the tension the novel plays with each section is the risk that she could become someone else that's in that section. Yeah. So I, she could become the other higher girls. Right. Right. And then, in fact, she kind of becomes worse in the eyes of the townspeople because she gets disgraced. Well, Lena and Tiny go off and become successes in their own right. I thought, um, just to speak to what you were talking about earlier, about the it having a different, a different kind of a plot structure than a lot of novels we've read, I found the book to be very compelling. Like, I wanted to read it, and yet it doesn't, doesn't, didn't have that engine of, are they yeah. going to, is Dracula going to kill Mina or not? You it know? wasn't suspense. It wasn't like a... 
oh, what's going to happen next? But I would argue, I'm about to say that it is, actually. I mean, I think that it has a lot of other things that are beautiful about it. But the driving question, I think she sets it up nicely. I think a book like this does actually have the bones of classic story structure beneath it. They're just well hidden because I wanted to know how Antonia was going to end up. And it was clever of her to start it with, Jim being kind of an ele- married to some lady that didn't care about him, obviously a disappointed man. That whole introduction is really clever. Uh, so yeah. that you you always have this question of, well, what's going to happen? You know they're not going to end up together, but how how and what's going to happen to Antonia? And I think it does kind of pick up steam and pull you through. I'm not arguing that it's the same kind of narrative as like Bram Stoker or whatever the example you want to use. But I think there are questions that you want answered that do pull you through. It would be wrong to say that this book has no backbone to it or no structure. That's just a collection of, it is a beautiful collection of short stories in one sense. Each chapter is its own thing, but it's a character study. Right. Yeah. And you're, you're interested in how, how, how does she end up and how is it, come to be that Jim's not married to her. Right. Yeah. What is the thing that happens is absolutely the and you sort of want to know how Jim, to figure like, out. why did, Jim's obviously a person that's connected to the romance of the land, of the people, of everything. He's yeah. old, Why is he alive. in New York City? Why is he this New York lawyer that whose wife throws parties that he doesn't care about? And you know, it's like... Fake poets and stuff come yeah, to their house. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. She's just hosting. He has no interest in them. He's... The elites or whatever. We never find out who his wife is, right? He just, no. No, we do know that she, she was some... It was an advantageous marriage, and she was a New York City girl. And right, it's nobody. That really. it was like a, and a, her father in the community was scandalized that she married some somebody from the plains or something like that. What did you guys think as, as far as the? I guess just to answer the other question that Brandon brought up in his context, as far as uh, not that it has an unreliable narrator, but the tension between. The fact that Jim is looking at this nostalgically and he knows it is. Is Antonia actually someone that has this inner light? Is that is Willa Cather saying, here's a character that you should know, reader, because this is a woman that had this inner light and every she took, you know, she she went into, out into the orchard and suddenly you understood the why orchards exist. Is, is she that woman or is that just how Jim sees her? Are we just seeing Jim give her all this power because he's nostalgic for a very special time in his life in a very special place or is Antonia actually a special woman well I think Antonia is a special woman everyone sees her as useful and they like her her father likes her the best Jim's granddad likes her the townspeople all like her until she becomes disgraced but then they still like her because she's poor Antonia yeah and Jim's angry that she made herself something pitiable but they feel pity for her so yeah so there is something unique and likable about her but I also do think that there's a lot of the other part to it as well, of him just has the glow of nostalgia, especially in the early parts of the book. And even the way in which he remembers her father, for example. Right. That was the most startling disconnect between, it wasn't an unreliable narrator, but it was just like, this guy blew his own brains out and then then sat in the cold shed. It's a horrific tragedy. Abandoned his family. Abandoned his family by a, by a very cowardly man, ultimately. He did what Mr. Bennett can never do. Right. <laughs> Blow his own brains out. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one way to look at it. Yes. <laughs> I kept thinking of Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett with their relationship. I but. thought about them with Jim and his current wife. And yeah, I did think about them a little bit too. Um, I sort of felt like Mr. and Mrs. Shimerda were maybe important to the story as, I don't want to quite want to say symbols, but they both seemed to represent the bad way that like Mr. Mr. Schemerden was a romantic and nostalgic and he blew his brains out. Jim was romantic, nostalgic, and he ultimately was able to make peace with the the past and the present coming together. So you have Jim and you have Mr. Schmerda and they're both stuck looking backwards. Right. You have Mrs. Schmerda who got their whole family where they got by looking miles ahead of herself. Right. And that's the way that Ambrose you know, drives to. So you do have, I think, I don't know if, see, it just occurred to me while you're saying it, but it does seem like you have this dichotomy of people that are stuck looking way back or looking way ahead, right. being very forward thinking. It's the, yeah, just to the point you were saying, it's the risk that both of their characters have. Right. He could go that way, she could go the other way. Well, the fact is, Jim is 
living in the past and he does have yeah but i want to argue that life. i think um i want to say that the ending is a good thing for jim because you could certainly make an argument and me and jacob talked about this some off mike that the whole character of jim is an effeminate loser weirdo who is stuck fantasizing about some woman from his past you know when he probably should like figure out something with his weirdo wife or whatever his real actual wife i want especially if you compare him to mr shimada whose affection for the past and hatred of the present causes him to blow his brains out i want to say that there's some triumph for jim saying you know what i'm not going to spend another 20 years mooning and thinking about how wonderful the past was i'm just going to go meet the adult antonia i'm going to find what's still good about her except that she's old and has kids and a husband and i'll take the kids hunting i mean it kind of seems like okay cool now we can have an adult relationship the past can be put where it belongs and maybe that's a good thing it doesn't seem to me that jim actually wants to put the past where it belongs jim wrote this book in a in the heat of passion. You should have written something about Antonia. Oh, I'm going to go... Re- I recently... He'd already struck up the friendship with her. I don't know. So it's a depressing story of an idiot. They can't off- get over his past. Have we got in, into our off-mic conversation now? Well, the last... Here's the last paragraph. Can we read it? It doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to be a depressing story of an idiot or a totally redemptive, beautiful... I'm not saying it's a total redemptive, beautiful thing, though. I'm just saying... I think it is a mix of both, because if you read the last paragraph, this was the road over which Antonia and I came on that night when we got off the train at Blackhawk and were bedded down in the straw, wandering children being taken we knew not whither. I had only to close my eyes to hear the rumbling of the wagons in the dark and to be again overcome by that obliterating strangeness. The feelings of that night were so near that I could reach out and touch them with my hand. I had the sense of coming home to myself and of having found out what a little circle man's experience is. For Antonia and for me, that's fine so far. For Antonia and for me, this had been the road of destiny, had taken us to those early accidents of fortune which predetermined for us all that we can ever be. Now I understood that the same road was to bring us together again. Whatever we had missed, we possessed together the precious, the incommunicable past. So he's either getting at just that the reality that you have with certain people in your life that you've got this deep past with them and experiences that you share. And because you share those things with them, your life is shaped around theirs and their life is shaped around yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's what you have with family for sure. Yeah. Well, and Jim didn't have a family. Yeah. Right. Jim didn't have siblings. Jim didn't have a mom and dad. He had his grandma and his grandpa who were old. And what he did have was this relationship with this girl, this bond that they shared and all this hard stuff that they walked through together. And so it's perfectly natural for him to be sort of stuck on on her. She was sort of both a sister figure and a mother figure. And Mm -hmm. this sort of like romance, romantic, but not thing that is always being toyed with. But you also get the sense that there's... They both are doing pretty well for themselves. But the, but at the same time, Jim is a grown-up married man living in New York City with a family who's stuck on this girl. He's always... Yeah, and he's coming back to find her and to see her and... To play with her kids and... Take them hunting. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a little bit weird. Yeah, it's a little weird. I don't know. It felt more like rediscovering a sister, though, than it did... Well, one thing I sexual. kept... Yeah, rediscovering it. Yeah, I don't know if there was anything sexual about it. One thing I kept wondering when I was reading this, though, was the difference between what a man would think versus what a woman would think. And Willa Cather wrote this, obviously, a right. woman. And so maybe she thinks this is beautiful, but if a man, I don't know. Maybe she doesn't realize that she should have dealt with the whole sex issue because as men were like, uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's a little, I mean, it's a little bit of romanticism going on at the end. Well, this is, ni- this is a nice turnabout is fair play because I always, I'm always like embarrassed by men that like, really, Bram Stoker, you wrote Mina like, oh, the men folk will see me crying and, uh, you know, now we can <laughs> <Yeah>. finally. <laughs> <laughs> and like, well, there are just certain things that. What else struck me that way? Oh, the grandfather's response to the suicide. He was supposed to be this Protestant, kind of hard-nosed Baptist. Baptist deacon. And yet he was so sympathetic. And it reminded me a little bit of the wishy-washy effeminacy in Gilead Gilead, with the pastor there. And I was just wondering if there wasn't something to the fact that this is a woman writing this story, that you get these sort of responses that are more relational. With dealing with that one in particular, I just thought, yeah, that explains the... That is like, that's just Midwestern values. It's like you take these people with these principles, but then you, if 
you throw them together in this tough situation and you put a little bit of, add a little bit of warmth and compassion and then you just begin to start smoothing over the edges and okay. just so long as we can all get along with it, we're all just, we just want to get along with each other. And so that struck you as realistic. To each his own and sort of whitewash each other's, find the good in it. And that that's how, I mean, that's how I read that, but I don't know. I'm not, I don't want to like turn into the authority on the Midwest or something like that. I hadn't thought of that. I mean, that I'd heard, I've heard that about Midwestern people, the Texan thing to do too. Maybe the Texans and Midwesterns have something in common there. Just whitewash it over. Hmm. God hears the prayers of all good people. Yeah. Another instance of that. With it the, felt me as a betrayal, and I didn't know if it was coming because it was an actual betrayal from the granddad. It, well, fe- it, felt, to me, it felt inevitable to me. Really? Jim sets his grandpa up that, like he says multiple times, oh, crap. I hope grandpa or I saw grandma look at grandpa and I knew she knew it was coming. So you sort of do get the idea that there's been situations where grandpa has not been willing, you know, where he said the the religiously staunch manly to use brand. He's, he's dropped his thing, principle. Where he's his dropped his down. principle. Yeah. He he is kind of there's multiple times where you feel the tension of is he going to do that and then you never actually see him you, I guess you do see him do it a little bit but not really but then she does she is able to draw a character like that because Mr what's his name the family that she goes to live with she leaves because he won't let her go to the dance yeah she draws him fairly hard-nosed and accurate but you don't see him much Mr. and Harvey, you could make yeah. the argument that the actual people that she draws the best are the men and the women who are like men because she's Lena and Tiny and Antonia, oh. they all had to take... The women who are like men. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm sorry. Something about how she, you said I'm that. I'm trying to think, does she really have a soft woman? Except maybe the grandmother. Grandma, to some extent. They're all tough. Yeah, yeah but she, even she is tough. Every woman that she actually draws is tough, right? Yeah. It's yeah. not the bride that got thrown to the wolves. She was probably... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, man, that story <laughs> stuck with me. <laughs> That's when I knew like, I loved the book, actually. It was so... Oh. Hey, something horrible. I can I'm gonna enjoy this book. Yeah, sorry. I can, I can't do it. It's not as easy as it looks. I can do it. You think it's I can going do to... it. Where, now <laughs> leave me alone. Where do we find these, these Twitters? <laughs> uh, you can follow The Bookening on Twitter and Instagram at The Bookening. You can also follow Warhorn Media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Warhorn Media. You can find Nathan on Twitter at Not Famous Nathan. You can find me on Twitter at Jacob Minsel. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook, but just go ahead and look us up there if you want to. Brandon is not on social media. I think he's on Facebook. You may be able to friend Brandon on Facebook. I'm on Instagram too. Yeah, it's like Oh yeah, you're newly on Instagram. That's right. He's got like six pictures. Yeah. B.S. Yeah. Chastine. B. Scott Chastine. Oh, B. Scott Chastine. <laughs> <laughs>